0: optogenetically inspired DBS compared to the canonical traditional DBS which was much less efficient. So I think that's another just proof of principle that this line of thinking optogenetics can give you blueprints for new DBS so and then you can actually see whether this is feasible and there may be a you know some which are not feasible but I think uh, if you're really clever and exploit these mechanisms, this knowledge about these circuits, yeah. to just whenever you have access to these cells, and should it only be on uh, you know, surgical in- instruments that you take back up from the brain, you can wash them. And if you yeah. do this carefully, you find 2,000 to 5,000 neurons and you can do transcriptomics on those. So I think that would be uh, something I, I, I would advocate, bring back the neuron To neurology. We can now not only look at the activity of neurons, but we can actually look at the transmitter that comes out of the neurons. So there are genetically encoded fluorescent reporters that change their intensity as a function of how much dopamine they see. Making a hypothesis that this cell projects from A to B, you're actually looking at the entire project home. And uh, there have already been a number of surprises from from that kind of... of... I think it's an illusion to believe that we can can direct research too much towards potential applications.
1: Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome back to Stimulating Brains, episode number 20. Today it's my great honor to present this following conversation that I had with Christian Lüscher, who is a neurobiologist and full professor at the Department of Basic Neurosciences of the University of Geneva. Christian is also an attending in neurology at the Geneva University Hospital. He's very well known for his contributions in the field of addiction, particularly for establishing links of causality between the drug-evoked synaptic plasticity and adaptive behavior in mice. In his lab, Christian uses optogenetics to study connections and neuromodulation in the brain, while in clinics he also uses deep brain simulation to treat patients. Since 2015, he organizes a conference called OptoDBS that aims at bringing researchers from the fields of optogenetics and deep brain simulation together and also, of course, looping in clinicians with the aim to translate findings from the optogenetics field into the clinical practice of deep brain stimulation, or at least into the research field of deep brain stimulation. In his own work, his lab has created evidence with optogenetics to reverse some sort of addictive mechanism in the brain that he could also then reproduce with deep brain stimulation in the same mice. So far, the last step to really translate this into clinical practice or test this in humans has not been done. But with OptoDBS, the conference in mind, he really wants to make such translations more frequent in the field. It is my very great honor that Christian has asked me to co-host the OptoDBS conference this year in Geneva. So in our conversation, we also talk a bit about the concept behind this year's conference, what we expect as highlights of this year's conference. And we also, of course, want to invite you all to join us this June in Geneva for OptoDBS 2022. So if this conversation and this type of reasoning behind bridging genetics and DBS is interesting to you, why not consider joining us in Geneva? It's also one of the first in-person conferences that will happen now that the pandemic is a bit more under control, and um, we're really looking forward to fruitful exchange in, in the field um, at an in-person conference in beautiful Geneva. The OptoDBS conference has a mechanistic focus, so we're really inviting people that are interested in expanding our knowledge and mechanistic insights of deep brain simulation and optogenetics. And to me as a participant in the last conferences, it was really one of the most insightful conferences I ever participated in the field of deep brain simulation. So I hope you enjoy this episode number 20 of Stimulating Brains, and I also hope to see you in Geneva in June 2022. So Christian, thank you so much for taking time um, to do this interview with me. Um, I will have more formally introduced you by now. Um, so maybe we can directly start and to break the ice. Um, what do you do when not involved in research or medicine?
0: Oh, okay. And so you're asking me what I'm doing when I'm doing nothing. So I have two passions that I uh, really uh, do uh, in my free time uh, one is cycling the other is photography. So the road cycling is something I really like to do. Uh, obviously it's a, it's a physical exercise that I'm looking for. We don't have enough of, of that in the provision that we have. But it is also it's just the experience of geography. I I really take great pleasure in exploring landscapes uh, by just cycling through it. You know, this is
1: real mounted mountain cycling, right? That sure, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, I you know, I, I road cycling, so uh there was one uh, trip we did from Lake Geneva to the Mediterranean Sea. And so, obviously, from Tonon to Monton, And, uh, you know, I sort of knew that there are mountains in between. But now, actually, I know. So, I <laughs> know how, how, how high they are, how they steep they are. And it, it's really just a great exercise to experience your surroundings. Beautiful. So, this is one of the things I really like to do a lot. And the other one is photography, and that's something I started when I was a teenager, uh, already in the dark darkroom, develop, developing uh, film and, and printing the prints yourself. Now it's mostly done uh, digitally, but I still, I like it a lot. And, and so my passion has always been with the large format, so I have already, with the uh, uh, in the beginning we 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 had i have the Mamiya rz and, and and so that gives you, gives you these big negatives and you can then blow them up and you you really have a very crisp image and now i sort of uh, emulate this uh, by uh, taking uh, many pictures that, I'm, that i then i stitch together and that gives me a very high resolution so this is one thing i i really like to do and probably yeah. as you know uh, i also take uh, portraits portraits of colleagues this is a series that i started six years ago of the uh, whenever i'm invited or where I, that i meet someone then in the end of a discussion i ask permission to take a portrait and that uh, then made this uh, website and the series of the famous neuroscientists in their natural habitat so I uh, Yeah,
1: that that's such a cool uh, project. I've just seen a, a photo of Jens Volkmann that I think you took in in Würzburg uh, uh, as well in that series. Is that going yeah. to be a book one day, or or is, it, um, is there any plan to make that? I don't know. Or is is well, you see, I
0: mean, I think the website is the best way of showing it. it yeah. They're so diverse. There's so many different ones. And, and so some that come to memory, which I really think are really special, are like uh, with Elena Cataneo, who is a neuroscientist in Italy and also a senator for life in the Italian parliament. She brought me to the parliament. So uh, that was a, wow. was a great shot at the entrance, the guards watching over her. So that's the kind of thing that I think, or, or just very recently last year, Uh, Carmen Sandi, who is a a very distinguished uh, scientist, gave a plenary lecture in uh, Lisbon. And and then at the end, I took her in front of all these empty chairs with the signs of the COVID uh, spaces on it. And so I I think, yeah, it's great. I'm looking for trying to uh, see something in people. And uh, yeah, I think I'm going to continue this.
1: Great, yeah. Please do so. So we can also link to the um, site on the show notes. Um, now, speaking a bit more about science, um, already, what, what were like key turning points in your career? Who were your key mentors? Who stuck out? What changed everything? Yeah.
0: Sure. So, so I'm I'm an MD by training, and so at the time I did my MD. There were no MD-PhD programs available in Switzerland, but I was always very interested and drawn towards uh, science and actually neuroscience from the beginning. So for me, it was clear that I wanted to be a neurologist. And so I did uh, an MD thesis and uh, then uh, did some clinical uh, uh, electives and, and, and started my uh, residency. But then what really made me the scientist I probably I am now is when I started studying synaptic transmission. And that happened during my uh, postdoc at UCSF with Roger Nickel. It uh, was a great mentor. It was an uh, interesting and, and very stimulating environment in, in that lab. And so that was something that really stuck out. So that that is certainly something where I where, where I did learn a lot. And the... Other person, probably particularly also in the context of what we're discussing today, that uh, was important to me was in 2010 uh, in Geneva, uh, Pierre Polak was hired as chief of neurology. And so Pierre then, uh, who really has firsthand experience and then part- participated in inventing Subphalamic nucleus DBS uh, then taught me how to do this in practice. And so I, wow. I learned it from the master. And so, uh, so these two people certainly uh, made a big impression on me and helped me uh, trying to bridge basic science with uh, the clinical uh, activists that I, that I always kept.
1: I did not know that. Yeah, and and um, as you may know, we have one episode with Pierre uh, Polak as well. Oh, um, on this I,
0: I did listen to it. And okay, course,
1: great. Yeah. So, 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 do you, how much clinical and research practice do you do in percent? Is that easy to so tell?
0: right now, it's it's basically a, a day a week that I see outpatient patient yeah. uh, in the outpatient clinic, and the rest of the time I'm, I'm in the lab. So yes, it's a, so it's 20 okay. split. And you
1: still clinically involved with deep brain stimulation?
0: Yes. so Yes. So we do have uh, an activity of DBS and now in collaboration with the Center in Lausanne, but we do see the patients before they uh, then are operated and we see them after it. And and so the whole fine tuning of the stimulation is then done again in in Geneva. Yes.
1: Okay, so research wise, your lab is working on investigating addiction, I think mainly using optogenetics, but also many other tools, uh, obviously. Could, could you, is it possible to summarize what you're currently most excited about?
0: Sure. So, so, so I, I guess the overarching hypothesis that we're trying to test is to which extent changes in synaptic transmission can explain addictive behavior. So this sort of stems, again, from my postdoc at UCSF, where I studied synaptic transmission and synaptic plasticity, long-term potentiation, and long-term depression. And uh, it became clear to me that this would be an interesting phenomenon to study in the context of addiction. And, And that's for two reasons. First, at the time, it was already clear that one commonality of addictive drugs is that they increase dopamine. And dopamine can modulate transmission of glutamatergic, but also GABAergic synapses. So this this was a very cell biological argument.
1: And, and sorry, you mean increased dopamine in the ne- nucleus accumbens, correct? So or, for
0: example, or? yeah. Whenever yeah. there is a synapse, a sort of a tripartite synapse, yeah. where glutamate afferents make synapse onto a cell. And at the same time, there is an ascending dopamine projection. Then this is the outline of a synapse that can be modulated okay. by dopamine. So that, that is, that's one of them. Then, of course, the, the, the place where that happens first is the nucleus accumbens. Okay. So that is certainly something. And the other thing, uh, yeah, is that at the time, Wolfram Schultz described his reward prediction error signaling in dopamine neurons of the ventral degmental area and uh, put this into context of temporal difference learning. And so that obviously was also a very uh, different but equally convincing argument that we should study the convergence of dopamine and glutamatergic transmission. And so that was sort of the from the beginning, we set out to study addictive behavior as a substrate of altered synaptic transmission when dopamine modulates glutamate transmission, yes. So that was the, that was, that's the beginning. And so we, we then spent some years, actually, trying to understand whether this is indeed the case for all addictive drugs, is that they actually increase dopamine because while this was of sort of assumed, it's not a trivial question because each addictive drug has its specific molecular target And so how they could increase dopamine in the nucleus accumbens differs a lot. So we identified the different cellular mechanisms through which dopamine increases when you take cocaine, heroin. And the first one we actually started with is a sort of atypical drug. It's gamma hydroxybutyrate, GHB. And it's a GABA-B receptor agonist. And we were able to show how that nevertheless can increase dopamine. So this is one line of a number of projects where we have looked at this. We looked also at benzodiazepines, and we actually have now a paper in revision where we look at ketamine in that context. Is ketamine increasing dopamine? And if so, how would it do it? And so that is, so these are, this is still something we really think about all the time. And then the second sort of line of research was, okay, so if dopamine changes glutamate transmission and induces this plasticity, which we in 2011 called drug evoked synaptic plasticity, then the question becomes, how does that actually relate to behavior? So which synapse is responsible for which behavioral alteration? And that uh, was probably from 2010 to 2020, most of our research, we tried to establish links of causality between specific types of identified synaptic transmission changes and adaptive behavior. And the adaptive behavior that we were studying at the time was really some of the very early types of adaptive behavior, such as sensitization. You know, if you give cocaine, the animal runs around. If you give a second dose, Uh, then the animal runs around more. So this is called locomotor sensitization. And we sort of try to identify the cell or substrate. And we found that, yes, indeed, if MPFC afferents onto a combo D1 medium spiny neurons is potentiated, then that is actually the neural correlate of locomotor sensitization. Because we designed experiments that allowed us to restore the normal transmission. And then the animal would behave as if it had never seen cocaine before. So that was for us, that was sort of a important experiment. Again, it was in 2011, where we were for the first time able to show that beyond this correlation of seeing these changes in synaptic transmission, we did actually have evidence for a causal relationship.
1: That that is a very like I think key um, result. I mean there there have been many in your line of research, but where you because at, at least as a layman that I am kind of in this work, you would assume this is a potential treatment, right? It seems like modulating that way with optogenetics first, and I think then you also replicated that with DBS or with electrical stimulation in in mice as well, could yeah. lead to desensitization <laughs> or reversal of the. Uh, oh, adaptive yeah. behavior,
0: exactly. So, yeah. so but before you know, before thinking of behavior, it's just it, for me. This is the first time I sort of started started to make sense that we did have a sort of the, that we we're, we're getting at the core of addictive behavior, and so contrary to many other theories, which said that you know, people are addicted because uh, they lose neurons, for example, drugs are neurotoxic. And so somehow there are neurons dying. And that is the reason why people are having uh, addiction-like behavior. We could show that without any loss just a simple change of synaptic efficacy between two identified neurons was sufficient to drive an addict- addiction-like behavior in the mouse. And so this, this causality link for us was, was really a turning point. And then from there, we sort of took it and then started to investigate probably the much harder question, which is, which individual are truly addicted? Because with addiction, one of the problems is that so, not everybody...
1: So very interesting. And we, I think we should say that if you give... Enough, um, like access to drugs to to both mice and humans. Apparently, only twenty percent get addicted. Yes, that, that's true, right? And um, so, so, so y- your question would now be, why is that the case? Correct.
0: Well, so, so there are two questions. So, why is this the case, as you said, and how yeah. does it occur in the brain? So now that we have looked into this a little bit, we have a fair idea how the brain changes. When an animal, when an individual becomes compulsively addicted, we don't fully know now yet why and and what are the predisposing factors that would lead in one individual to that and not in others. So that is that is still something we're we're really actively working on. but but the the questions of which circuits code for the compulsion mm-hmm. and how and 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 in the transition from this, recreationally controlled drug consumption and the compulsive use of a drug, that we have a, we have some ideas. And this is something we started in 2015. And ever since that has really kept, kept us very busy because it, it's obviously a difficult question because if you have to set up an experiment where only 20% of the individuals actually show what you're looking for, then it's a much harder experiment. Then yeah. if we can do study something that happens in en- every individual, yes.
1: And I think you could you could max that to to fifty percent by direct optogenetic stimulation, yes. right? And then then I think half of the animals would yeah. show that.
0: So, so exactly because it is such a difficult, uh, such a low number. It's only twenty percent with cocaine. We then thought that maybe we could get higher transition if we had a sort of uh, somewhat pure addiction by directly stimulating the dopamine neurons of the ventral tegmental area. And sure enough, when we did that, so the animal uh, had rhodopsin in the VTA dopamine neurons and could self-stimulate these uh, VTA dopamine neurons. And all the animals did that. And, and really like to do so and were highly motivated to do so. You know, they, if they had to press several times, they would do that. Uh, and, and, and the fact was that under these circumstances, 50% became compulsive. And so then we said, okay, now we have a model where we have sufficient individuals transiting to it. And so we can actually study it. And so that's how we he, we studied it. And we identified a specific circuit, which now is in a, more dorsal part of the striatum between the orbitofrontal cortex and the really central part of the dorsal striatum. And if the potentiation happens there, then animals are compulsive. And so this is a good example, how you can use leverage optogenetics to do something with a much more, much higher precision and then, of course, afterwards, we had to go back and validate if that this is indeed also the case with cocaine, which it is. So, uh, yes, I mean, <laughs> so this is using optogenetics as a means to, as a surrogate for an addictive drug, and through that, better understand the pathophysiology.
1: Would that experiment more or less directly replicate the olson Milner setup, or is it I mean, I knew, know that was electrical stimulation, but was it the same, you it's know, the
0: target? the same mindset. Yes, absolutely. So it's just that uh, we did stimulate similar regions. Um, and then we did prolong the stimulation over two, three weeks. And then we uh, looked uh, for the animals that would not stop that self-stimulation, even if they had to endure a uh, aversive stimulus, such as a uh, light electric shock. Yeah and so that's how have, we find the compulsive individuals. Okay. And these
1: would have more activity in the OFC or like sustained activity. Yeah, so policy? they have
0: they have higher activity in the OFC and as a result the connection between the OFC and the dorsal striatum is potentiated. And so we again then used optogenetics in a different way to show causality because if we took a mouse an individual which after all these sense the all these uh, experiments uh, this animal would not be compulsive, right? Yeah. It would stop with the aversive. Then we could artificially potentiate that synapse and it would become compulsive. And conversely, the individuals that were compulsive, we could de-potentiate the synapses between the OFC and the dorsal striatum and they would stop self-stimulating. Okay.
1: And I think if I understood correctly, you don't yet know correctly what um, what differentiates the the two populations, but epigenetics seem to play a role, as you show in the 2019 Neuron article. And then, and then, maybe in a, in a second question along the same lines, I think in 2006 you you came up with a model of addiction in the brain, but that did not account for this. You know that some yeah. some animals would, yeah. would get addicted, <laughs> so, so and others would. It's
0: ones. true. So we then summarized the uh, the results in the field, not only ours, because there are many other people working on these circuits of addiction in first in 2016 and then 2021. And we sort of developed a uh, first circuit model of drug addiction. And the one in 2016 is really version 1.0, which would not take into account this transition to actual addiction. So it was certainly an incomplete version of it. And now in 2021, together with Patricia Janak, we published uh, one where we now integrated these newer findings from us and other groups and uh, that is sort of, uh, yeah, now the version maybe 1. five or something like that.
1: Great. Okay. It's really amazing uh, research. So, so how do you think such insights as the ones from your lab could then um, best inform clinical practice? What are yeah. the gaps? That,
0: yeah, Yeah. So, so exactly. So I think, you know, obviously, if you have these circuits model, then a list of things you could propose as potential therapies. So then the question is, how do you do this in a individual, in a human, where access to genes and, and genetically determined cell population is, is, is not possible? I mean, maybe, maybe that will become possible one day, but I guess for now, it's just not possible. And it is very difficult because it requires a virus that brings in a gene and it requires a uh, typically a cre lock system for a cell type specific recombination. So you start with a transgenic animal and then it would require that the expression is stable over the entire duration during which you want to treat, which in, in, in most cases is, is years or tens of years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so So I guess there are possibilities to translate directly optogenetics to humans, but I think they are still at least 10, 15 years off. So with that in mind, we had another idea, which was to say, well, what if we could use the optogenetic protocol that really works well to instruct new creative ways of doing electrical stimulation akin to what we do with DBS? And so, in other words, the question became how can we emulate with the electrical stimulation what we can do so successfully with optogenetic stimulation? And so, there again, there's not one solution to that problem. There are many, many solutions. And just as a proof of principle, we were able to show that what we successfully did in 2011, that is, to take away this locomotor sensitization uh, with optogenetics, we could emulate this with electrical stimulation if we added a dopamine receptor D1 antagonist. And the reason for that was that with the electrical stimulation, by contrast of the optogenetic, you would also create a lot of release of dopamine when you put the electrode in the nucleus accumbens. And this dopamine would preclude the normalization of the synaptic transmission and so in order to avoid that problem we simply had to add a dopamine receptor antagonist to refine the stimulation a tiny little bit and with that we then have the same result as with the optogenetic one so this was just a proof of principle how you can if you know what you should be doing there are maybe creative ways of of, of doing this and so This is one of the ideas which we called optogenetically inspired DBS. And I think there are many others there, including uh, additional new papers now coming out where people pursue the same line of reasoning in order to make DBS, uh, to refine DBS and make it more efficient
1: amazing so 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 and i did not um, know that with the antagonist so so has that was done in mice in your lab so has anybody went you know got gone to to humans yet with that or
0: do you not know about know it so okay. you know in theory everything we did you could do it in humans you okay. can put electrodes in their convents sure you can stimulate with the frequency we did which was 15 hertz and you can use that drug, which is called ecopipam in humans. It's actually FDA approved for other indications. And so you could combine all of that, but uh, to, so far, although we did have a few discussions, it has not been possible to launch a uh, clinical study, which in part may just be because the indication is, is a difficult one. So People with addictions are very reluctant to seek that kind of treatment. And sure. So, you uh, mean the so operative, so, the invasive? Yeah, the it um, yeah. it's invasive and so forth. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, it would be an interesting thing to do.
1: Okay. Um, any, any other like prime examples, uh, segueing into the conference uh, talk as well, um, where people have used optogenetics that then inspired deep brain simulation
0: or? Well, sure. So, I mean, now we're, I guess we're leaving a little bit the addiction field, which is yeah. fine. And, and, and as you know, <laughs> the primary indication for DBS is Parkinson's disease. Yeah. So I think there's a really outstanding paper in science in uh, in 2021 from uh, Teresa Spix from the Gittis lab, where they did just that. So uh, in essence, what they discovered was that in the GPE, there are two cell types uh, which have, or which can be genetically identified. And if you optogenetically activate the un- one and not the other, you actually in an animal model of PD, are very efficient. If you activate both together, you're much less efficient. So now they did an entire electrophysiological investigation of the two cell types and then realized that the sort of a special burst firing pattern was doing exactly what the optogenetics was doing. That is, they could activate one type and not the other one because of the, you know, the set of ion channels one had, it adapted to that burst and did not follow. And so with that in hand, they then went in and actually did in the mouse, a, a DBS experiment. And sure enough, they did have a very convincing effect with this burst firing, this optogenetically inspired DBS compared to the canonical traditional DBS, which was much less efficient. So I think that's another just proof of principle that this line of thinking can be really good. And, and, and I think it's, uh, again, I think it, it has all the ingredients that now could be tested in a clinical study.
1: Great, yeah. So, so be, simply put, with optogenetics in, in the mouse, we can do almost anything, and we can be really precise. And now, the only question is how do we mimic that? And in, in um, with I, I sometimes so, called
0: it, optogenetics can give you blueprints for new DBS. Yeah. So, and then you can actually see whether this is feasible, and there may be, a, you know, some which are not feasible, but I think uh, if you're really clever and exploit these mechanisms, this knowledge about these circuits, yeah. you can do things that you could not do before. And, you know, most of the DPS I know has never tried to really exploit plasticity mechanism. It was always about changing activity here and now immediately. Yeah. And, and so, so there are plasticity protocols, which can then sort of offline, and that would even have the advantage that you would have an effect that is enduring and outlasts the direct stimulation. Yeah. So then maybe you would have to have to stimulate once a week, and then uh, that would already be a great advantage for battery life.
1: Amazing uh, concept, and I think that's a perfect segue to talking about opto-OptoDBS. Uh, so since 2015, you've been organizing this Biennial Conference in Geneva, um, which will also again take place um, this June, again in Geneva and Switzerland. So can you summarize what were the main aims? How, how did it come up and what's the philosophy behind OptoDBS?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's exactly as you said, in 2015, for the first time, we had this idea that maybe it would make sense to organize a meeting where across the aisle, DBS specialists would talk to optogeneticists exactly with the idea to see how we can learn from each other. And uh, that was certainly a, in 2015, a totally new concept. And I'm really happy that uh, we're now at the fourth edition that I'm very honored to co-organize with you. And so I'm looking forward to see how each time we do it, the idea becomes clearer and uh, people are getting in that mindset of using the idea of uh, understanding circuits and through that come up with clever new ways of doing DBS.
1: Great. And uh, the honor was, of course, mine. And um, it's, it's really uh, um, Nice of you to, to loop me in, and it was fun to, to help uh, organize the, the program on maybe more on the DSI, side. But but I'm um, I, I must oh, say well, it's going you, to be great. Do. I mean i mean, it's uh, <laughs> I, I think
0: it's exce- yeah. so the two of us we sort of represent you know both uh, angles that comes to come to it, and and I think uh, sure I mean I, I'm really just, I'm just really excited.
1: For the record, wanted to state that of course you still do most of the, like the work and the whole um, concept, and I'm I'm really honored to be a small part of, in it. Um, so thank you so much at this point, but, but do, do you maybe going into that a bit more, looking back to the, um, original, like the other, um, three editions? Do you have some key insights or highlights in mind from the last years or examples where you really had the feeling, okay, now it clicked or there was this, whatever great, these two talks that were placed together that did it work out the concept so far?
0: Well so it, it certainly was first a lot of getting to know each other that's yeah. that's for sure yeah. but i do know for a fact that arian had some of her ideas uh, during these meetings uh, so Very i'm true. certainly proud of, of 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 having sort of being able to set the stage that uh, that they could go and then actually did the work so that's certainly and i think the other thing that comes to mind is that uh, during the meeting we've always put an emphasis on uh, Uh, non-PD indications of DBS, uh, such as OCD, uh, and addiction and and depression. And I think that is also something where I can see uh, some of the talks of Helen Mayberg, how she relates them to uh, the the latest uh, observations that people make in the optogenetics. Yes, uh, certainly.
1: Great. Um, How how would you... So, and and, and we, we could, could mention that Aaron Digius is also um, giving a talk this this year. So, so it's um, maybe already advertising that. Uh, really looking forward to that. Or, or another one
0: is, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, using the optogenetics like Alexandra Nelson's th- does that from UCSF to understand how DBS actually works. Because if you want to study what an electrical stimulation does in the brain, it's very hard because you have a lot of stimulation artifacts. Uh, The sheer fact that you stimulate at 100 Hertz makes it hard to see with another electrode what you're actually doing, even in a neighboring structure. So I think what came in there is sort of the observational limb of optogenetics that is calcium imaging. So here you have a method that allows you to transfect cells. uh, Again, cell type specifically with uh, proteins like GCaMP, and that allows you to follow the activity as a calcium signal, and there is just no stimulation artifact. So I think through that, and and, and I know that she has new data that she'll present at the meeting. That's, uh, that's very great. That's also very exciting to see. So you can also use optogenetics to study, how DBS, what DBS actually does, because yeah. let's face it, we don't ultimately, ultimately, we still don't fully understand how it works.
1: Then, then maybe to to um, bigger picture about the conference for, for listeners that now might think, oh, I should go to that meeting. Like how would it compare to um, maybe the DBS think tank or the DBS expert summit, or also IBEX, which are probably the, the closest other conferences that... I
0: yeah, and think. definitely, then there are also all the GRCs, so uh, GRC on basal ganglia, and So yeah. I think it, it is always a uh, sort of, a, I think it's the only conference that really puts them face to face. Yeah, uh, I, I do see that there are many uh, thinking along these lines also in these other conferences that you mentioned, some of which are more on the, uh, on the, the clinical angle and some of which yeah. are really definitely on the, the basic science angle. But uh, really having them talk to each other face to face, I think that is the, where, where 50% of the speakers are specialists in optogenetics and 50 percent are doing clinical DBS, uh, that's quite unique.
1: Great. What, what I maybe from the program, we won't go into detail. we, we thought about like and not we won't speak about specific sessions, but what are maybe key highlights that you're looking for beyond the two talks already mentioned.
0: Well, so so I'm certainly looking forward to... uh, We have a good set of people giving us updates on the latest approaches with optogenetics. Um, I'm also particularly looking forward to uh, looking at uh, very uh, quantitative behavioral observations that now can be done with markerless uh, pose estimation. I think that is also something where we need to do much better in the animal research, is to have a, a more quantitative observation of behavior and, and motor behavior, you know, looking at limbs, how they uh, move, that is certainly something we can do now much better. And then uh, first day we're gonna have uh, Philip Starr's keynote lecture. So I'm looking forward to that one because it is uh, getting into looking, di- di- discussing what should you be monitoring in the brain of someone undergoing dbs to make it most efficient and 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 he has a very creative way of doing this uh, looking at uh, frequencies but also on phase and so forth i think that's uh, that's not, that, those are a few i'm really looking forward to
1: great and um we we by now know it's certainly going to happen the regulations covid wise you know are, are quite certain by now um people can still re- register for the conference until may 15th is there anything else people should need to know about the conference? Oh, I mean,
0: it's just going to be great fun, too, to yeah. be in Geneva. And we, we do have a, a number of social events. And so for that, I mean, we do go, do go to conference primarily for the science, but we also go to meet other scientists, and it's fun to interact with those.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful setting in Geneva. So I think there are ones only myself, but um, I, I really love the setup, and it's really close to the lake and everything as well so really looking forward so before we wrap up let let us conclude maybe with some more general rapid fire questions um when do you think optogenetics will become a reality in clinical application we talked about that briefly already but beyond single case reports i think there was one single case where optogenetics was
0: So i just wanted to say that there has been in 2021 the first human transfected with optogenetics and that was in retina and that was uh, certainly that's a landmark that will be a landmark paper Um, but it's still a long way to go first of course the retina while it is cns it is much easier to approach and uh, the intervention there is a very specific disease uh, which where we know that what needs to be corrected i i think for the uh in the deeper brain structures, it will take more time, much more time. And I, you know, (laughs) it's difficult to predict, but 15 years at minimum.
1: Makes sense. Do do you think it would even ever replace deep brain simulation or, or will it, you know, by in 15 years, do we have other things that are even better?
0: Well, sure. I mean, you know, the electrical stimulation is not the only one, I think one modality, and then you can also think of magnetic stimulation. So that is certainly also something that may, that certainly will make progress. And something that people are really excited about is ultrasonic stimulation. There are sets of uh, mechanosensitive channels that you can transfect or that actually are expressed by uh, normal neurons and if you find the sort of a sweet spot of how you can do ultrasonic stimulation in a specific with a special focus in a specific brain region maybe that could be something and then you no longer need uh, surgery so i think that may be it's 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 really new and i think it's just just very fascinating to see how uh, such a modality could be interesting but again it's not something that is easy to use and it's uh, much less specific than electrical stimulation. So yes, it needs to to be further explored.
1: What are other like basic science breakthrough techniques that currently come up that maybe your lab already uses or thinks about using, for example, Is, is RNA barcoding something that's coming up or?
0: Sure. So, so I think, you know, modern circuit neuroscience, builds on four pillars. Uh, One is the behavior. We mentioned this. We need to have more quantitative behavior. We need to be able to look at the behavior in an unbiased fashion, to look at everything, if you want, uh, with high temporal resolution. Um, The other thing is that we uh, need genetics to have better understanding of the cell types. You know, I use the term cell type several times now. But we, frankly, we still don't know how many cell types there are in the brain. So uh, sure. even a, a nucleus like the STN, which we all sort of learn in medical school that this is very homogeneous, uh, glutamatergic neurons, the only one in the in the circuits of the basal ganglia, um, it turns out first there are GABA neurons within the STN, and second among the GABA neurons, there are different types of GABA, uh, among the glutamate neurons, there are different types of glutamate neurons. So I think we need to improve that and understand. And so one technique that obviously uh, has really uh, been transformative is that you can now look at the transcriptome of single neurons. So single cell RNA-seq. So that is uh, something that uh, many of us do you can do this in animals, but you can also do this in uh, humans. So it's probably a good idea to just whenever you have access to these cells and should it only be on uh, you know surgical in- instruments that you take back up from the brain, you can wash them. And if you yeah. do this carefully, you'll find 2,000 to 5,000 neurons and you can do transcriptomics on those. So I think that would be uh, something I, I would advocate, bring back the neuron. To neurology. I think that would be certainly something, I think. And then on the uh, third pillar, which is observation and manipulation of function, there's a a number of new technology that is emerging. So uh, we can now not only look at the activity of neurons, but we can actually look at the transmitter that comes out of the neurons. So there are genetically encoded fluorescent reporters that change their intensity as a function of how much dopamine they see. And I think that is really a game changer. So we can do this for dopamine, serotonin, adenosine, and so forth. So there's a a whole range of uh, sensors that one can now use. And and so having at the same time the activity and the transmitter released is is a big, big advantage. At the level of the... um, uh, at the level of the effectors, there are also a number of new ones. Uh, there are particularly interesting ones looking at presynaptic functions. So that has been inherently difficult to inhibit neurons optogenetically at the level of the presynaptic transmitter release. And there are new technology that comes, uh, comes in there. And then last but not least, and I mean, that's where you are certainly much more expert expert than I am, is when it comes to anatomy. And so I think together with the cell types, we can much better define the anatomy. And what's more, we can actually look in the brain without having to decide where we're going to section. Mm -hmm. And by that, I'm meaning that we can do these clarification techniques, these clearing techniques, like clarity, that makes the entire brain transparent, except where you have your fluorophore. And then you can use a light sheet microscope, for example, and basically scan the entire brain. So yeah. you're not making a hypothesis that this cell projects from A to B. You're actually looking at the entire project home. And uh, there have already been a number of surprises from, from that kind of, of, of research. So I think anatomy is, is 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 certainly. And for all of these techniques, I think what is really what, what I think is really amazing is that you can now... In animals, also use them in combination of observational techniques in particular that typically are used in patients, such as fMRI. Yeah. And so by doing this in parallel, I think this carries a great potential to really understand the cellular underpinning of altered function in humans. I mean, this yeah. is one of the biggest, in my opinion, she still challenges is how can you make cellular sense of an observation you do in human with a technique where you do not have cellular resolution. So how can you apply the cellular models to these results? And that's true for fMRI, that's true for EEG and so forth. So I I think there are really great uh, times ahead where one can combine this and then with advanced analysis techniques really make very clear predictions.
1: So you can have optogenetically inspired fMRI then kind of right in the yeah. same concept where, where you, you know what's going on in, in, in the mouse with optogenetics and then you can measure fMRI and then try to map back um, in humans potentially.
0: Absolutely, um, so yeah, no, no, yeah. absolutely. This is exactly what I mean. Great, um, maybe very general question
1: Did you ever, and I'm sure you have had like true Eureka moments in your research? What were the key moments where you thought, ah, now I understood it.
0: (laughs) So, I mean, what I mentioned in the beginning is this uh, experiment where we were able to show that by normalizing synaptic transmission, we could restore the initial behavior. That was certainly something like that. But even in situations like that, this does not happen within a moment, Right. This is a process where, from the idea, and in this particular case, this was an idea we had during a lab retreat. This is some of the really quality time that I uh, that I like a lot, sitting together. We did this for an entire week in a, in a small castle in France. And, oh. and during that, we, we were sitting around and we're just uh, brainstorming. And then uh, someone had this idea. And then we started thinking of how could we possibly test it? And people said, well, some said, you can't do it. You can do it like this. And and so and then until we actually had results that were convincing. So it was uh, maybe our time timeframe of, or five months. So yes, in hindsight, this was certainly a transformative idea and a transformative experiment, but it's not how you see it in the movies where people, you know, take out something and then they see it immediately and they yes. understand it immediately. That never has happened to me yet.
1: In hindsight, at least you can pinpoint it to the moment, mm-hmm. but, but you're right. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that maybe also speaking about failures did you ever think this was a complete waste of my time or this did not go well
0: well i guess i have this basically every day and what i'm alluding to here is uh, this increase of administration i mean i think that is uh, something which i think is getting to a limit where sometimes i feel it's difficult but on the other hand the possibility then to discuss with people in the lab, actual science, they show you new results at lab meetings or with colleagues on the floor. I think that just makes up for, for all of that. So yes, I'm still optimistic about science and the future of it. But it has become true that uh, on many levels, whether it's grant administration, whether it's uh, uh, animal experimentation, the whole administrative overhead has become very, very difficult.
1: When we met in two thousand, like last year in July in Berlin, you you um, recommended the Karl Deichlert's book uh, Projections, which I am um, I'm still reading, by the way, but but have read a bit, and it's it, it's amazing. I also really like the audiobook, which he narrates himself. Um, so in in the in the foreword, he says something like you know, he mentions that the optogenetics research when it began was only possible because of um, basic research that had taken part in, in the algae um, that that were then used in proteins and algae like decades before that, and at the time, people that made that kind of research never could have foreseen, you know, what that it would be used in neuroscience and maybe even medicine later. So he uses that argument to make the point that these base, you know, we should continue investing into these basic research questions that are not so directly goal directed or even clinically directed and,
0: and then there are other voices more. that i couldn't agree okay. more i think that's really an important point and yeah. you know i know georg Hager, nagel and peter Hegemann, and and they were the ones that were working on allergy and they were the ones that first cloned channelrhodopsin and so uh, and then sought to find people who were interested in even trying this in neurons and that was a that was a lengthy process already right there. But I think yes, indeed. I mean, we can learn a lot from uh, so-called useless basic science. Absolutely, I, I think we 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 should still have uh, academic freedom where investigator drive the question. And I think it's an illusion to believe that we can be can direct research too much towards potential applications. And because there
1: are voices that are you know being voiced that that we should invest more in this very focused clinical research, right? Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's good to hear. I mean, I, it, that.
0: It, it, it's a trade-off. I think if mm. you are in a good situation where you have clear knowledge of how it's in and it's, it becomes a technological issue then of course i can understand that you do very focused applied research but with brain diseases and that includes parkinson's but certainly addiction depression and, 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 and certainly also schizophrenia we know so little that we still need to be really open-minded and try to yeah. get at the basis of it not only on how the brain dysfunctions, but how the brain functions for, for, for in domains that are relevant for these diseases. I mean, we, we still don't know how uh, mood is really coming together in the brain, mm. so how anxiety is coming together. And so, yes, I think uh, the time of basic science is not over.
1: I absolutely agree. And, and I mean, the point he makes is even going beyond that I think even studying just the proteins and algae without even thinking about the brain at all um, in itself was you know maybe at the time not as clear why people w- would even be interested in them but but then um, later it, it became apparent now this is very useful and and he I think he makes he tries to make the point that only by doing so can we really create disruptive things because everything else is is step by step right it's, it's small things happening but we need this maybe random, Investigation
0: of, sure. Then, but then yeah. I, th- I think I think I mean the optogenetic is certainly a good example where people have studied algae, and in these algae there's a phototropism, and so they do at their surface have light activatable channels that bring them in the right position so that the photosynthesis is mo- is optimal. But then once you have that, it also needs the prepared mind. To understand yeah. what we're looking at and what the potential is for that, and I know for a fact, Carl uh, Dicerot was not the first person Georg and Peter contacted, and uh, they were turned down by a few colleagues who probably are not too happy they turned them down. Interesting. So that's a uh, yeah.
1: So any advice for young people entering the field?
0: Well, so I think it's, it's again, it's, it's exciting times because I think something that the field has started to realize and is making a big effort is to be more inclusive. I think in the past, often scientific careers were sort of traced by uh, your origins and by the schools you go to and the mm-hmm. social class you belong to. And I Really, I'm happy to see that this is much less the case now. And I think we should continue these efforts. In, in, in many countries, this is fir- first and foremost uh, gender equality. I think that is certainly something. So I think uh, people who are just curious, they should now endeavor into it and not think too much whether they are the type of person science is looking for. And again, coming back to my uh, project on the famous neuroscientists in their natural habitat and their portraits, this is one of the motivations why I did it, because I wanted to show how diverse neuroscientists or scientists in general are, and that the image that we have, the stereotypical image image of a scientist is simply no longer true, and rightly so. I that. so uh, I think that's exactly the what fascinates me and so for young people is there are many new opportunities and they just just go for it. And the only question, and eventually they have to ask themselves, do I have that curiosity in me to go and check out stuff? And if that if the answer to that is yes, they should definitely go for it.
1: Great. Super. So yeah, thank you so much, Christian. Um, have we we have talked about a lot, but has there been something that you think we should have covered that we missed?
0: Well, let me think. I think, no, I think we have done a a great job. I mean, you have done a great job in preparing these questions. And uh, yes, I mean, uh, the, uh, for us now between you and me, one of the big questions is how do we then bring really these new concepts to clinical fruition? And that remains uh, really a, a big challenge because uh, let's face it, it's 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 not easy to change clinical practice, and and okay. certainly rightly so because there are safety issues and and and, and so okay. forth. But we need to find better ways of uh, bringing the basic science to the from the bed to the bench side.
1: So let's start with the conference in um, this year yes. uh, in Geneva. Really looking forward to seeing you in person again, and uh, yeah. also hope that some some listeners might uh, now be convinced to come uh, join us there.
0: Yes, Great. and we still have slots also for people who want to talk. So there are possibilities to submit an abstract. We did leave open a few slots precisely for those who have sort of uh, cutting edge research that we would that we could have missed. And uh, we're happy to look. We're looking forward to that. Great. Thank you Thank so you. much, Christian. Have a nice time. Thank Sunday. you, Andreas. Thank you. You too. Bye bye.